Hello and welcome to Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Rebecca Keller. Rebecca will be reading from and talking to us about You Should Have Known. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So can we just, we'll jump right in. Can you tell us a sentence or two about the book? So the book centers uh, Franny Green, who is a 72-year-old retired nurse, who after a fall is convinced by her son and daughter to move into an assisted living facility, get an apartment in the assisted living facility. And while there, she begins to meet some of the fellow residents and makes a new friend named Catherine, who is very different than her, kind of a Southern Belle type. But they they strike up a, a friendship. And then she meets Catherine's husband. And she realizes that Catherine's husband is the judge whose corruption she blames for the death of her beloved granddaughter and the subsequent near breakdown of her daughter some years before. And so what she does with this knowledge and how she responds to all of this is, you know, the bulk of the book. I love that. I love that she gets to be either angry or curious and do whatever she's going to do. And she gets to live her life doing it. So could we have our first reading, please? So this is the very first, the very beginning of the book, chapter one. And it is in the first person. So this is Franny speaking. I scanned the medications on the cart, pills sorted into tiny cups made of pleated paper, sitting atop smudgy laminated cards, each marked with a name and apartment number. The cards took me back to my hospital days, reminding me of surgical drapes framing the place to cut. A few medicines were set apart in smooth plastic containers the color of swimming pools, Oxycontin, Vicodin, Hydrocodone, Tramadol, powerful, dangerous, able to suppress respiration, like morphine, named after Morpheus, the god of dreams. In Greek mythology, Morpheus lived by the river of forgetfulness. There is a common assumption that the only thing old people do is forget, or conversely, that all we do is sit around and remember, dwelling in the past. These things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they represent the twin requirements of old age, recalling who we are and what we care about, while forgetting, or at least pretending to forget, how much we have lost. Remembering and disremembering, getting this balance right has become my main struggle. There are some things I can't let fade. I press on the bruise, keeping the memories alive and active. They are part of me. Besides injustice, or rather indignation in the face of it, is as good a reason as any for a person to get up in the morning. Somebody, somehow, has got to hold the world accountable maybe by the sheer act of insisting on it, justice might happen. I look down the empty hallway. There is a lot of freedom in a place like this. One could get away with a lot, since no one expects anything of us. Allowed to remember or required to forget, either way, no one expects an old woman to do anything. Well, I reject that. My age offers me a measure of protection. But... Iris, though. Iris, the thought of my daughter holds me back. The memory of her pain and the fact that she seems to finally be able to make room for new memories, new life, makes me pause. I sometimes wonder where to drop the pin 
on the timeline marking the sequence of event that led me to the Ridgewood Assisted Living Retirement Complex and all the things that have descended from that. Did it begin when I fell and hurt my knee? Or further back, maybe, the day Cal died? Or maybe the path that led me here began when Bethany was killed. Ruthie, my darling cousin, I wrote, one thing is for sure. However I conceptualize the past, I certainly would not have foreseen what the last two months have led me to. Well, what an opening. And I love that she knows, too, that because she's older, there are things that she might get away with that people don't expect her to do. And as readers and you know, people living and being older, it's nice to see characters who are also older doing things that maybe people don't expect. So, Right. Really I mean, exciting. to the extent that old people are invisible, she recognizes there's a measure of freedom in that. Mm-hmm. And if she's invisible, all right, then <laughs> maybe <laughs> it lets her get away with some things. Uh, so, yeah. So on your, your bio, you've had this really interesting collection of careers. And I noticed that one was a nursing home cook and the character is in an assisted living facility. So for me, I found it quite fascinating because of all the medications and allergies and chemical reactions. But then also you, you take into that the justice system and revenge and people and timing and so many things that can go wrong. What sort of research did you do for the book? She is a nurse, a retired nurse, and was very successful in her career. So she has a fair amount of medical knowledge and a fair understanding of how to navigate systems that, you know, where, where people are in various you know, getting various degrees of medical attention and care. And as you the book opens, she's looking at the medication cart and she knows exactly what these medications are, which provides, you know, sort of a, a foregrounding for some of the major events in the book. But I did want to make certain that I understood what how these places worked and how uh, medications worked. So I spent some time talking to uh, people who were, in the medical side of these kinds of facilities. And it should, I should say, I know you're in the UK, uh, an assisted living facility is not, is not a nursing home, but it is often adjacent <laughs> to a nursing home. And the people in them need greater or lesser degrees of help, which is one of the, the kind of things that the book rests on is her, her insistence on maintaining the highest degree of independence but the fact that there are people around her who are not as independent as she is. Wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? Sure. So I'll sort of set up the beginnings of the book. Uh, so she, her children convince her, her, her son and daughter named Charlie and Iris, as was mentioned, convince her to get a, an apartment in the Ridgewood Assisted Living Complex, which, where she is when the book opens. And this next section I'm going to read is where she, before she moves, the morning of the move, where she's leaving her condo and getting ready to to go. The morning of the move, I was up at dawn. Most of the furniture was already gone. I sat at a folding table in the kitchen waiting for my kids and shocked myself when I glanced down at my hands curled in my lap. Years ago, I had picked up a staph infection in my right thumb. The thumbnail blackened and fell off, but it grew back thicker and stronger. That morning, it looked yellow and claw-like, my skin dingy and somehow fake, like my hand was made of wax. But all that is analysis, 
explanation. When I saw my fingers clasped in my hand that morning, in my lap that morning, my immediate thought was they looked like the hands of a corpse posed in a casket. I remember reading somewhere that old age is like visiting another country and that you enjoy it more if you prepare. But how can you prepare for this? Okay, financially, sure. Legally, architecturally, sure. Updated wills and wider doors and shower bars. But emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, I have no idea how to do that. And I crossed the border into this country a while ago. Nothing can prepare one for this. It is simply perseverance, or maybe stubbornness. Finding the motivation to get up every morning, despite the fact that no one really cares what I do once I'm up, so long as I don't die or otherwise cause trouble. And this country, I was traveling through it quite alone. That day, for the first time in my adult life, I was moving without my husband, leaving behind the last home we made together, going alone into the future. At least Cal had had me. But had he? I pushed myself up and paced, leaning on my cane, overcome. He'd died six years ago, and still I wondered, had I been present enough? Had we had the sort of heartfelt discussions we should have had? It always seemed one or the other of us wasn't ready. On the few occasions he seemed like he was wading into deep emotional waters, I would change the subject or busy myself with some pragmatic concern. He'd do the same when I was the one who initiated I remember years ago when I was getting ready to go in for surgery, removal of a benign lump after a breast cancer scare. He held me by the shoulders and searched my face with such profound tenderness in his gray eyes. But when I put a hand to his cheek and asked what he was thinking, he moved his head just a little and said, nothing, sweetie, nothing at all. Just wondering where I should take you for dinner on Friday. Then he took my hand from his cheek and gently kissed the inside of my wrist. Maybe that was our way of talking, that look, my hand on his cheek. We were married more than 50 years. Besides, I told myself, if I needed assurance of his inner romantic, I could always read his love letters, a few precious souvenirs from when we were courting. Our letters. Oh, God, our letters. Where were they? I hobbled to the bedroom. Next to the master bath was a walk-in closet where I was pretty sure they were stashed with other mementos on a high shelf. The letters were intimate, private, erotic. For me, they represented the secret garden, the time when Cal and I had allowed ourselves to be young and lusty and foolish and vulnerable and sentimental. We were both too pragmatic, too much children of hard times to let those qualities, or at least the romantic words, seep into our day-to-day. But once upon a time, we had exchanged our letters. Now, Charlie and Iris were going to be packing everything up, sorting through those boxes. I hadn't decided whether I'd destroy the letters or leave them to be read by our kids after I was gone. But while I still breathed, there was no way I would allow anyone else to see them or even know they existed. I looked around, considering options. The high shelves that had offered secrecy were a hindrance now. Then I remembered After a near mishap on a stepladder a couple years ago, I purchased one of those can grabber thingies, basically a wand with a retractable claw on one end to help reach over my head. The phone rang, but I didn't have time to attend to it now. The answering machine clicked and there was Charlie's deep voice. Mom, everything good? I just picked up Iris and we're heading over. Moving day. Are you excited? 
That meant I had only 15 minutes. I looked behind a stack of plastic bins into which Iris had begun packing sheets and towels. Leaning against the wall was the grabber wand. Okay, great. I'd found the thing I needed to help me reach the thing I really wanted to get. Now, where was the decorated box that held the letters? I scanned the shelves. It was there somewhere. I spotted a tiny trail of blue velvet tied around a box wedged behind a plastic garbage bag stuffed with blankets. Carefully leaning against the wall, I raised the grabber over my head. I managed to hook the bag of blankets and pull it down. It landed with a thump on top of the bins Iris was already filling with bedding. The lid was not askew, and papers and pictures and the precious letters spilled in a slippery avalanche to the floor. I caught a distant whiff of the perfume they'd been dabbed with, evening in Paris, which I had thought was the height of sophistication when I was 23. I bent to scoop them up. Below them were the photos. There sat I, holding baby Iris while Charlie played in the sprinkler. And there was Cal, handsome in his wedding suit, his dark hair shiny with brill cream. There was a farm where I grew up so long ago now, pale specks of snow flying across the black and white landscape, fading at the edges. I closed my eyes and saw the long empty road, the wind blowing tendrils of new snow sideways across pitted gravel. My woolen scarf stiffened with my breath. The sky low and colorless, the fields double brown, dusted with frost. My dad touched my shoulder. He was pointing. Down the road, a moose emerged out of the ditch. The powerful haunches and the swooping antlers dignified the ridiculous humpy body. I blinked through tears. My grandkids would never see that place, of course. It seemed impossible that something so solid could be wiped away in a generation. The winter-locked farm, stars frozen in nighttime skies so frigid no moisture could obscure their glow. The summertime shimmer of northern lights, the root cellar, the milk house, the emptiness, the cold. My God, the cold. The calf I raised, and then we sold it. The melty taste of baby potatoes newly dug, cooked within minutes of being in the ground. And the sweet corn. I realized I hadn't eaten I opened my eyes and took a look around my disheveled bedroom. A small flutter filled my chest. It was my heart, a fist-sized clutch of muscle, registering, what? Trying, despite all ridiculousness, to find a smidgen of excitement about a new place? Or was the flutter simply what happens, the way the body marks the moment when one has to let go and grief is replaced with resignation? I heard the elevator in the hallway. Charlie and Iris would be arriving any moment. I bundled the photos and letters into the box and hugged it to my chest, ready to carry with me to my new home. Oh, so Franny had been a nurse. And I'm just curious about, so that means that, right, so she will be able to assess a situation and in a different way, like at a different level, knowing things about the body, knowing things about um, what interacts with what knowing maybe who's taking what and how much they should be taking. And I'm curious about that research that you did to kind of, you know, to to give Franny that internal um, knowledge. But what did you learn, if anything, through your research that was really interesting to you, but that just did not make its way into the book? Uh, That didn't make it, that didn't make its way into the book. That's hard. Uh, That's hard to say, I guess. um, You know, I think there's a lot that's implied in the book, but I think it's implied because it's such a common experience now among people that I know. 
Franny was not particularly particularly resistant to this to this move, uh, but many many friends of mine and many people I know have been through this experience with their elders, with their parents or their aunts and uncles. And it hasn't always been, they haven't always welcomed the, the idea that this might be the safest move for them. And I think the way it's been so interesting to me talking to people who have reached out to me about the book um, as their families navigate this entire terrain. And not all of that got in. I mean, a lot of it did not get in there. For, it centers Franny, but there's so much. There's other, you know, it's it's a well-populated book. She's not alone in this place and she meets friends and there are there is a social kind of context. But they, many people, even if it's not really in the book, they bring it there. You know, mm-hmm. they say the reader completes the the writing. Um, and, and because so many people have had these experiences of different of different sorts, so that's been very interesting, uh, both before and after publication as an aspect of how people receive the book, that, you know, how different people's experiences kind of crisscross through this the system of the what I call the aging industrial complex in the book, or what Franny calls the aging industrial complex. I love that. You know, I'm going to cheat just a little bit, and because I've been, I was curious about when Franny, when you were reading and Franny was worried about the letters and what that means kind of um, she's worrying now about what her children would think about, but she wants them to read it perhaps when she's gone. And it just reminds me of all the roles that someone might have and the many lives that go into the life of a character. So could you talk a little bit about what making her in her seventies makes possible in terms for like for you as the writer, maybe things that you got to explore that you wouldn't have been able to explore if she was younger. Right. Well, um, for one thing, a kind of, a kind of, again, fearlessness, you know, she's both limited, she's somewhat limited in her physical capacities. She's not as, she's not as physically strong as she was, you know, in her forties or fifties. And she doesn't necessarily have the kind of authority in the world that she once did because that also also happens, but she does have this kind of freedom of, of being invisible and also of thinking what are, at one point she asks, what are they going to do? Throw me a a old lady in jail. She sees that there are certain things that maybe she can get away with, which, you know, I wanted to write a morally complicated character and she goes down some kind of dark paths, partly because those very, some of those very guardrails that keep all of, some of us on the straight and narrow or all of us on the straight and narrow. I, I think most of us, I can't think of anyone that would have such a strong moral compass that if, even if there were no consequences, they would never be tempted to do something that they felt was, you know, morally questionable. And because those guardrails are less in force in her life, she is consequently, you know, more, the devil on her shoulder can have a little bit of a louder voice than it once did. You know, the, the kind of both limitation, but also the kind of, you know, what have I got to lose quality <laughs> is part of part of what being older gives you. And also a protagonist who is, um, who has the, the wisdom that comes with age. And that's such a, you know, such a, sounds like such a platitude, but you know, you've lived 70 some years. She's been a nurse. She's, her family's seen a lot of tragedy. You know, she grew up on a, as you could just tell in a, on a farm in a very different world. So she, she brings a lot of perspective that um, someone who has grown up in the city and is 25 or 30 years old, isn't going to have. She's lived multiple lives as you 
very well put it, rather than just the one or two that you've lived by the time you're in your 30s. I think that sounds fascinating. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. So the first two were sort of interior. So I, I thought I would include something that involves a lot of dialogue. So she meets, as I mentioned, she meets a, a friend named Catherine. And uh, Catherine is a, a bona fide Southern Belle. Very, very different from Franny. Kind of uh, delicate and ethereal and very proper. But they strike up an unlikely friendship. And in this, and I'm going to attempt a slight Southern accent, but it's, I'm hoping I don't come off like an idiot. So, because <laughs> so, I'm not an actress, um, but Catherine does have a very distinctive voice. So this is chapter four, the beginning of chapter four. The next morning, there was a knock at my door. I had just gotten off my phone call with Iris and Charlie, who worked at a small engineering firm, almost never dropped by on a weekday. So I was surprised. I opened it slowly, and there stood Catherine. She held out a giant streusel-topped muffin. Lisa dropped some of these by last night. I thought you might enjoy one, she smiled. Hopefully, you won't hold it against me, luring you into temptation with goodies from the bakery. I laughed. Hold it against you? Are you kidding? So long as you don't tell my doctor. I pulled open the door. In fact, I just made coffee. Come in and join me. As she settled into one of the stools by the counter that separated my kitchen from my living room, I quartered the enormous muffin and set it out on a small plate. Then I handed her a cup of coffee. Ooh, this smells good. She looked at me over the rim of her cup. I'll keep quiet about the muffin if you don't tell Nathaniel or Lisa about the coffee. I'm not supposed to have it. I had recently made a partial concession in that regard and the insistence of my own doctor. I said, Does it make it better knowing it is half decaffeinated? She sipped. Sort of. But it's kind of fun breaking the rules. I get tired of having to be so careful all the time. When I was younger, I could eat whatever I wanted, even if it was unhealthy and nobody policed me. I hear you. It's one of my biggest annoyances with my kids. Iris is always, Mom, don't eat this. Don't lift that. So tiresome. Makes me want to eat onion rings covered in cheese and salt just to prove I can. I raised my mug and clicked hers. Here's to transgression. That's when the alarm went off on my phone. I blushed, reaching to turn it off. Do you have something going on? She stood. I apologize for just stopping by. Don't let me interrupt your plans. I shook my head, tucking my phone in my pocket and gestured for her to sit. Oh, no, I just... I glanced at the living room, feeling suddenly open. Well, speaking of transgressions, would you be interested in joining me? I lost my nerve. I felt myself blush. She looked at me peculiarly and glanced from her watch to the television. Then she beamed. Oh, my goodness, you too? She lifted her eyebrows. So do you think Summer will end up sleeping with Kyle? She had guessed it. My guilty pleasure, the young and the restless. I sighed. It started when I was in rehab for my knee. My roommate insisted on watching it. At first, I turned my nose up. I always thought soap wrappers were so ridiculous. But by the end of the first week, I was hooked. I picked at the muffin, feeling sheepish. It's so silly. She waved my embarrassment away. Oh, please. I've been watching it for years. Back when Lisa was young, everyone I knew watched it. You were a career woman, so it just took you a little longer to get hooked on the adventures of Nikki and the Abbots and the whole town. 
Besides, is it really that different from some of those costume dramas on cable? She slid off her stool and looked at the television in my living room. Let's watch together. It's about to start. That week, Catherine and I ate lunch nearly every day. I got a fuller picture of her life. We were from completely different worlds. She grew up as the pampered daughter of a wealthy Savannah banker and became the cosseted wife of a judge with a housekeeper and a gardener. I grew up milking cows on a farm in North Dakota where there was never enough money, and the idea of household help would have been unimaginable. Deep in my heart of hearts, I've always looked down on women like Catherine, an attitude I'm not particularly proud of, but still. Maybe I was getting more open in my old age, or maybe I was more lonesome than I'd realized. She fascinated me. She was a real deal, a bona fide drawling Southern debutante, Gracious and well-mannered, she was capable of letting someone know when they weren't up to standard with a raised eyebrow and a tone that was simultaneously dismissive and disappointed. She occupied her place in the world with a rock-solid certainty about the way things should be. She reminded me of some of the privileged characters on the soap operas. She told me about the first time we'd ever she'd ever seen snow, or at least experienced enough of it to make angels. I was 15. I was at the youth group in my church with met in the basement. When we came out, it was early evening and the light was bluish purple and the air was sparkly and full of glitter, like in a movie. It felt like magic. Her eyes shone. At the time, I was trying to impress a boy in the choir with my sophistication, but we all ran around like excited children, sticking our tongues out, trying to taste a snowflake. I was jealous of my friend who wore glasses because she could tip her face upward and watch them melt on her lenses while I couldn't stop blinking as the flakes hit my eyes. She turned her face aglow with remembered delight. Then she became self-conscious. That must sound ridiculous to someone like you who grew up with snow. I lifted my chin, memories of my own flooding my mind. To tell you the truth, the first snow is always a little magical. Suddenly my heart was in my throat and it was late afternoon and the shadows were stretching violet across the fields and the whole world felt like it was holding its breath full of mystery and hush as the first flakes landed softly on my cheeks. I swallowed. That first snowfall, especially the slow sparkling kind, not the kind we sometimes got where it felt like the sky was throwing bullets of ice at you, but the lovely, soft, soundless kind, I paused, suffused with a sort of empty longing. Well, even us Northerners are not immune to a world full of glitter. Oh, Rebecca, what a lovely reading. Where can we buy You Should Have Known? Well, it is widely available. It's it's distributed by Penguin Random House. So you can find it nearly everywhere, Barnes & Noble, um, at your local independent bookstore, which is where I like to, you know, support Amazon, you know, the big, the big one, and almost any other bookstore. It's very widely available. And it's published by Crooked Lane Press. And uh, it's also available in a really wonderful reading um, by someone far better than me in a, a electronic audio version. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for being my guest for the readings, for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. It was lovely to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed it.